What does it really mean to just be there for a patient? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me is Dr. Lori Klukey, an associate professor at the University of Northern Colorado School of Nursing in Greeley, Colorado, and the author of the journal of hospice and palliative nursing article, Just Be There, Hospice Caregivers Anticipatory Morning Experience. Dr. Klukey, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. How has the way we die changed in America? Well, we've seen a lot of change over the years. We've moved basically from an agrarian culture to an industrialized culture. And in that, a lot has changed. Most of our healthcare dollars are spent basically on the last two years of life. And in general, we're a death-denying culture. We often intervene at all costs. And we tend to see death as the enemy, which in some ways is funny because we never really win that battle. How did we become a death-denying culture? Or do you think we've always been one? Well, I think in some ways we've pretty much been one, although I think people who lived closer to the land and animals and saw the cycle of life saw how life really is on a continuum, and so that dying just became part of that cycle. And then as we moved more into industrializing everything and being in jobs where, you know, we were working in environments where we weren't seeing death all the time and death became more unusual, we kind of thought maybe we could beat it. And in some ways, Lots of things have changed. In the 50s, we had antibiotics, and that changed the course of medicine. Now we'll probably be looking at genetic intervention. And what we've done is instead of having dying happening in our environments where we would have our elders at home, we now institutionalize it, and we move our elders either into the hospital or into nursing homes. So a lot of times people have never seen somebody die, and they've never been around somebody when they died that used to be part of a, a normal learning process we went through. And now people in their 60s sometimes have never seen somebody die. That's a great explanation. So it's become this huge fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And, and, and something that we're not accustomed to. How has the way we die changed the way we grieve? I think a lot of times what we've done is we've lost the support of the community. A lot of people are choosing not to have wakes or memorials or funerals. And these rituals were a way that we used to support the mourners in their grief. Loss is a painful thing, and it's so strong that when it happens, we actually feel it physically. And without these rituals that we used to have, we don't have a way to publicly acknowledge our our grief. And the time of transition And the impact it has on us as individuals, we tend to just put it aside. We're often told to just get on with it, to move on. And when this happens, a lot of times it leads to depression or isolation, can lead to feelings of unresolved issues, and and that prevents us from moving forward through our pain. I mean, think about it. We allow three days for people to travel home, bury a loved one, and get back to work. And we don't really like to admit the pain we feel when we lose somebody close. Not having time to grieve somebody and having somebody to support us through our grief or acknowledge the loss tends to leave us with either unresolved or disenfranchised grief. 
that can lead to physical illness because it leaves a chronic stress problem with us. Describe your anticipatory morning research. What I did was a qualitative phenomenological study, and what I did was go to people who I describe as the experts, the people who live through this phenomena, and ask them what the experience was like for them. I had worked in hospice for many years, and so my work there let me know that people who had had hospice services could provide me with the information. So I interviewed over 22 caregivers for this study, which gave me a lot of data. And what I did was ask them, you know, what the experience was like, what it was comprised of, if their grief before the death was different from their grief after the death. So it was retrospective in in that manner. And everybody described for me that there was a difference between what they felt before and what they felt afterwards. So it pretty much confirmed for me that there is this phenomena of anticipatory mourning and anticipatory grief. What did you discover was the most helpful during this period? What I found really fascinating is that of all the people that I interviewed, every single one of them said that being there was clearly the most important thing for them. When I asked them to describe what that meant, it meant pretty similar things for people. People talked about how even if they didn't use it, knowing that there was someone to call with questions was a great comfort. Just having somebody come and sit and listen to their concerns was very helpful. They also talked about having the time to be present for the person who was dying was helpful to them, and they felt that they were able to comfort that person. And I think it's also important and something we need to be aware of as healthcare providers that just sitting down and looking somebody in the eye, holding someone's hand and answering the questions they have versus telling them what we think they should know can make all the difference in the world. Letting them tell us what they need is very, very important for them. And just having somebody that can listen to them. They don't need us necessarily to solve all their problems. What they need is for somebody to hear what they need. It also was very, very important for them that when they did need somebody, that they could pick up the phone and that there was somebody there at the other end of the phone line quickly. So that was really very helpful to them and and really an important piece of it. Your advice is very powerful. I talked to a patient one time who said there were so many people in her room and she felt all alone. Mm -hmm. What's your best advice for developing the art of being present? I think it is an art. And I think two things are very important. One is being aware of your own feelings and your your own biases and judgments and beliefs, because otherwise you have a dialogue going on in your head. Sometimes you're not even aware of that. But if you become more aware of that, then you can put your issues aside and deal with the person right where they are without having all that dialogue going on. I think it also takes practice to do what I call active listening and to listen really deeply. And what that means is to be able to reflect back to the person, not only what they're saying to you, but sometimes at a deeper level, what they're meaning by it. That skill can help people to clarify what they're feeling and thinking themselves. And sometimes we don't really know what we're thinking until we hear it. And if you can help somebody to express that, lets them know that you're really there with them. And that attentiveness and being truly present with that active listening lets them feel that 
you've done something special. And sometimes it's just encouraging them to speak and say the onset and identify the feelings. And sometimes you don't have to say a word, but your presence and your leaning forward and your being there is just very, very powerful to them. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and joining me is Dr. Lori Klukey, an associate professor at Northern University Colorado School of Nursing in Greeley, Colorado, and the author of the Journal of Hospice and Palliative Nursing article, Just Be There, Hospice Caregivers' Anticipatory Morning Experience. Dr. Klukey, what were your findings related to hospice? Well, actually, I've done a subsequent study with people who didn't receive hospice services, basically because I wanted to see if there was a difference. And what I found was just astounding. I found that people who had not had hospice services felt that they did not have hope, whereas the people who had hospice services felt they had hope. And it wasn't hope that they would elude death but maybe hope for a transition without suffering. And this is an area that I think still needs further research. It was just something that came out in my findings after doing the two studies, and I, it's not conclusive, but I found it very surprising, especially since when I talk to people about why they don't access hospice services, they oftentimes tell me it's because for them that's losing hope. And yet the people who did receive hospice services felt that they had hope. So I think it's, that will be a real interesting area of future study. And those studies are planned? Some of them are. And now that I'm teaching, it sometimes gets difficult to get all the research done that I'd like to do. Well, intuitively, that validates what hospice professionals have said since hospice began. Hospice is all about hope. Absolutely. And yet that's oftentimes what I hear from people when when they aren't using hospice services or when they refuse hospice services. So I think that there's some education that still needs to be out there. And there has to be a way that we can help people to understand that hospice helps people transition and it doesn't take hope away. And that's, that's a piece I think that people are still so very much afraid of. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. We welcome your comments and questions at ReachMD.com, which now features on-demand podcasts of the ReachMD Library. Thank you for listening.